In Luke 14, Jesus talks about the places of honor at a banquet. So back then, when you're invited to a banquet or some sort of fancy dinner party, you did not seat yourself. The host seated you. Now, the most distinguished guest had a specific place, and so did the second, third, fourth, all the way down to the least distinguished. Now, what's interesting is the ESV sometimes uses this phrase, reclined at table, when describing dinner parties. So, apparently, they did have regular chairs and tables back then, but at some of the really fancy feasts and banquets, they actually used couches or beds with cushions at the end. So they would line up two or three beds in a U-type shape, and then they would put in the middle a table with food. So you would recline at the table. You would use your left arm to support yourself, and then you would actually be laying down and using your right hand for eating. Now this custom was widely used by the Greeks and then the Romans, and eventually the Jewish elite adopted the style. In fact, outside the Bible we have something called the Talmud, which is rabbinic literature. In the second century, one rabbi gives these instructions. And at the time when there are three beds, the most distinguished person reclined at the head, i.e. the middle, of the middle couch. The second most distinguished after him reclined above him, i.e. to the left of him. The third most distinguished beneath him, i.e. to the right of the most distinguished, and so on down the line. Now, considering that Jesus was meeting in a prominent Pharisee's home, the ESV translation for reclined at table probably means that they use couches and beds instead of chairs like we do today. So there you go, a little bit about banquet seating, and that's enough today for our historical minute. If you ever have a chance to thank Mike for all the research he does, make sure you go up and say thank you to him sometimes. It's just really interesting, isn't it? I want to start with prayer, but before I start with prayer, do we have a, a praise God for the weather today? I mean, it is awesome being this late in May and having this kind of weather. So let me pray, let me pray. God, we thank you for tonight. We thank you for another beautiful day that you've given us here in Phoenix. We thank you for the opportunity to come and to dig into your word. And we pray that you would send your Holy Spirit upon us in power that you bring comfort to those that need to be comforted, that you challenge us that need to be challenged, that, that you would give wisdom to us that are seeking wisdom. And Father, that you'd remind us that you got us, that we're forgiven, that we're loved by you always. And so that's our prayer tonight. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said. So we're in chapter 13, verse 18, as we're kind of continuing the story of Luke. Remember, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, and he's been sharing some pretty forthright thing with his disciples along the way. He's challenging some of the Pharisees with some very difficult things. And so he goes on in this vein today, and he's actually going to challenge us with some um, at least very countercultural thinking in terms of the way the world thinks about things versus the way that God teaches in his word. So that'll be fun as we go through that as well. So we pick up in verse 18, and he just says this. He said, Therefore, what is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? It's like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And so he says, what is the kingdom of God like? And he paints this picture of a little seed that grows into a massive tree. And just as it's a way of thinking about what happened with Jesus in Christendom, right? It starts with just Jesus. And then it grows to 12 guys. And then on Pentecost, it's 3,000 guys. And after Paul gets done, it's thousands and thousands and thousands of people all across the Mediterranean. And at one point in history, it's almost all the world. 
Today there are more Bibles in circulation than ever before in the history of man. It's translated into more different uh, languages and variants of languages than ever before in the history of man. And we, I was, we were in China about 10 years ago and they said there was about 600 dialects in China and they were working on the last 50 to get that Bible translated into. It was incredible that the work that they were doing at that time. It's on the radio, it's on the internet, it's on TV, it's everywhere that you can possibly go. The world largely has turned away from the Lord, and yet his word continues to share itself with all the world. So he's just saying that the kingdom of God is going to be like that. The work that I'm doing right now here today, God says, and Jesus Christ is going to explode into a place where all the world will know my name, where all the world will know that Jesus came to save. And then he goes on, he gives us another way of looking at it, and he says it again, he says, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It's like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. So I guess there's a way to think about that. When you use leaven, it's an external source that you add to the bread, right? The bread just doesn't rise by itself. It's an external additive that's added to the bread. And then it works its way through the bread, even though you can't see it, until it produces this amazing result. A couple ways to look at it. When the Spirit of God gets a hold of us, it works inside of us, though you can't see it, and works this amazing result in the transformation of a person. Or you can look at what Jesus did on this earth. An external force came into mankind, worked internally in the hearts and minds of people until the kingdom of God was everywhere in the world. And so he's using these two examples just to give us a picture of what the kingdom of God is like. And then he goes on to, I think, I think a very challenging teaching. It's called the narrow door. And he went on his way through the towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are being saved be few? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I don't know where you come from. Then you'll begin to say to him, we ate and we drank in your presence and you taught us in your streets. But he will say, I tell you, I, I don't know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And the people will come from east to west, from north to south, and recline at the table of the kingdom of God. And behold, some who are last will be first, and some who are first will be last. There's a bunch of stuff in this section. First of all, they're just asking a question, are there going to be a ton of people in heaven? Are most people going to heaven or, or are they not? In other gospels, we know that why does the Lord that, uh, why is the door that leads to destruction and many follow it and narrows the door that leads to salvation, right? And only a few find it. It's a challenging verse because what does it say? It says at the very, I guess, surface of it that not everybody goes to heaven, right? Did you go to one of two places? You go to this heaven place or you go to this place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. We call it hell. All the way through scripture testifies to those two places, those two destinations in eternity. And though we all get this, anybody not get that as a Christian that some people go to heaven and some people go to hell? No, we, we all get that. We all understand that. And do we also understand as the scripture testifies that most people don't go to heaven? I mean, do, do we get that? That why does the door that leads to destruction and many follow it and, and 
and narrow is the door that leads to salvation, only a few find it. Now, as we look at our world today, we see that we're kind of walking away from God as a society and as a world right now. Does anybody think that's not true? No, it's true in almost every sphere of our earth right now. And so I think we can look at that and say, well, yeah, it makes sense that a lot of people aren't going to go to heaven. They're turning their back on God. We all get that. So now I'm going to challenge you because that's all stuff you know. Isn't it interesting? Isn't it interesting that we know that most people in the world who don't cling to Jesus, right, go to hell, except for those people that we know that don't cling to Jesus? It's interesting. Somebody dies. They haven't been in church in years and years and years, and we're so sure that they went to heaven. Why? Well, because we love them, and we can't stand the thought that they might not be there. And I always would just, you know, if they knew Jesus at some point, you always got a hope. You pray for that hope, and you'll find out in heaven is what I share. But, but it's just an interesting thing. It applies to everybody in the world except for the ones in our lives that need to know Jesus desperately that don't, but then all of a sudden they pass and we're absolutely sure they somehow made it in. So Jesus shares a hard truth in this, doesn't he? He says this, he says, strive to enter through the narrow door. It's a present day striving, okay? It's working at it with all your heart. It's, it's trying to follow the Lord. It's, it's holding on to him with both arms as you wrestle with your faith, as you wrestle as just being a disciple, as you wrestle going through this earth. When I was praying for a wife, this is kind of a sidetrack, but when I was praying for a wife, I prayed for one that was seeking the Lord. Is there a difference between the one who's seeking the Lord and one who just calls himself a Christian? Yeah, I would say you guys are seekers. You're here on Sunday night listening to me talk about the Bible. That's incredible. You guys are all seekers. I don't care what you say. But the reality is, I wanted somebody who was seeking the Lord. And when I met Beth, she was a, a, one, of the, she, one of the helpers, right, in the youth program. And so she was in church all the time. She was working with kids. And, and, she, and she just, she wanted to know more about who God was. And that was attractive to me more than, and she was pretty hot too. But, but I, that was really attractive to me at that time, right? And one of the first things that she did, right, to confirm that in our relationship, she, I think she knew I was, a, I was a pastor, right? So she started reading through the Bible on her own accord, because she heard that I did it as part of my devotions and she just wanted to know God better and so she started reading through the Bible, read through the whole Bible our first year uh, just dating, confirming that she was one that wanted to get to know the Lord better. There was a striving, right? A striving to enter through that narrow door, a striving to get to know God better, a yearning to get to know him more. Pastor John just shared an example with me about a pastor who went, forget exactly where he went, but overseas someplace, and he had this opportunity to teach some people, and they said, hey, could you come in for three or four hours and, and teach us about what's in Scripture? And so he went there, and they just ate it up for three or four hours, and they said, could you come the next day? And he's like, well, how long? For like another three or four hours? And they're like, no, could you come all day? We want to hear more. And there was a thirst and a hunger to learn more and more and more. And he just kept teaching them and they kept soaking it in. And then he came back to his, you know, suburban church, right, where he, you know, had the comfy office and he came and, and he was like, I, I can't do these secret services anymore. I, I've got to get deeper. But he didn't know if anybody would be interested because we so conditioned our, our, I guess, our American church just to go surfacey all the time and and yet he, he just saw a group of people in his present day that were yearning, craving to hear scripture. And when it rains in Arizona, people don't come to church. It, it's just two different things, isn't it? So when Jesus says, they ask him the question, you know, there's going to be a lot in heaven, few in heaven, he says, he doesn't even answer the question here. He just says, strive to enter through the narrow door. Strive now. Yearn for him now. Receive his forgiveness now. 
follow him now. Try with everything that you've got to enter through that narrow door. And then he goes on to say this, for many, I tell you, will seek future tense to enter, and they will not, future tense, be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and knock, the door saying, Lord, open to us, he will answer you, I don't know where you come from. Thing is, we don't know when our time is up, do we? None of us do. And so if we're always banking on the future to get to know the Lord, to follow the Lord, to seek the Lord, to find his peace, to his comfort, his strength, if we're waiting always to do that, there'll come a point eventually when there's a too late. And that's what he says here. When you come to me at that point, it'll be too late, and I'll say, I don't know who you are. Then you will begin to say, in defense, you'll say, but we ate and drank in your presence. We taught in your streets. I went to church all the time, you know, on Christmas and Easter. I, I, I went on this mission trip that one time. I, I went to Sunday school. I, we just kept saying everything that we've done for the Lord. I'd been around Jesus. I understood Jesus. I was going to get serious about Jesus later on. But he will say, I tell you, I, I don't know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. Now, the wonderful part for me is that I don't know exactly where Jesus draws the line. But it's a curious way to respond to that, isn't it? It says that there is a too late. It says, with everything in you, make the present count, right? Seek me now while I can help you. Seek me now while you are able. Seek me now when I can infuse you with peace and strength and hope and joy and forgiveness and all these amazing things. Seek me now. And then he says, depart from me, you workers of evil. So all that, in other words, haven't embraced him, they're cast out into this kind of place, a place where there's weeping. You know, weeping would be a sense of mourning and gnashing of teeth, which would be a sense of rage. So mourning and rage, when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourself cast out. You can understand that reaction, can't you? Mourning that you're not in, mad that you're not in, seeing everybody in heaven, but you, some on the outside looking in. Gives you a picture of hell for eternity and it just gets worse, you know, as the scripture adds to that picture, but but at the very minimum, it talks about that being a very real part of it all the way through. And people will come from the east and the west, from the north and the south, and recline at the table of the kingdom of God. In other words, to the Jews that he was speaking of, he says, guess what? Gentiles are coming in in mass. You've rejected, but I'm opening the doors to everybody on this earth who knows me, who wants to cling to me. I'm opening up the doors of heaven for them. They are now my children too. And that would have enraged, right, the Pharisees who were listening to this at the time. And behold, some who are last, right, the Gentiles will be first. And some who are first, Jews in this case, will be last. He moves on from that subject and goes to another one. It says, at the very hour, Pharisees came and said to him, get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. Kind of an interesting thing because they hated Herod, everything he stood for. And so they were, whether they were patsies for Herod or Herod was just using them in some way, trying to encourage them to get out of that area and into Judea where they had more power, perhaps. There's a whole bunch of theories behind that. But he says this, go and, and he says to them in response to, you know, you know, be wary of Herod. He says, go and tell that fox, okay, leader, leader of that particular area, probably not a wise thing calling him a fox. A fox meant that he was a little bit duplicitous and he wasn't a great man, so he's calling them both those things. He says, go and tell that fox, behold, 
I cast out demons and I perform cures today and tomorrow and on the third day I finish my course. In other words, he's saying I've got work to do, but in a short order, I'll be about my business and I'll be leaving. Right? I'll get to the point of why I came. It's kind of representational here, although it does make us think of the three-day thing, but, but the reality is I've got work to do. And then he continues that thought. He says, nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following. So he says, I'm going to be here for three days. For it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. And he gets a little prophetic there and says, this is what's going to happen. That's when I'm going to finish my, my race. Ojer, and then he begins to lament about this. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you would not. I think a way of thinking about that is, okay, let's pretend I went on the news and I shared scripture and perhaps it was unpopular scripture in our world. Most scripture is, it seems, today. And you can imagine that the... Uh, reporters, whoever talking to me and letting me talk would be enraged by some things that Jesus says, right? And I wouldn't be probably the most popular person in the world. And then I said at the end of my talk, Jesus says, come follow him. Can you imagine them saying no? Yeah, I think we can all imagine them saying no. Okay, you get a picture of this. Jesus says, how often, and he's not just speaking from himself and his experience, he's speaking for God, how often I would long to gather you unto myself. I keep sharing with you my message of repentance and forgiveness. All the way through scripture, that's his basic message. Repent and be forgiven. Repent and find life. Repent and you get to be with me forever in heaven. But how often have you rejected? Is that any different than today? No. And then he says this, behold, your house is forsaken. So he's talking to Jerusalem and he's saying there is a too late for cities, for countries too. If you keep on sinning, if you keep on rejecting me over and over and over and over and over, one day I will come. And it's too late. Behold, your house is forsaken. And I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. A lot of people think that's Palm Sunday, but it seems like it's greater than that. So maybe the second coming or whatever it might be. But it's an interesting teaching here, isn't it? kind of kind of cultural because today we say what good people get to go to heaven and everybody's pretty much good right we base it on a curve look our friends are pretty much good everybody else in the world's the bad people right so so we kind of do it like that how many people do you say are you going to go to heaven well i think i've done enough things yeah i think i should be there can we even stand the thought of somebody going to hell not in our culture in fact there's a liberal front that's teaching today that there's no such thing as hell in contradiction to stuff that we just read, in contradiction to all the scriptures, God is just love. You heard that train of thought. And if God's just love, he wouldn't send anybody to hell. How could God be so mean as to send somebody to hell? And yet Jesus says right here, what? If you don't cling to me, if you don't believe in me, and is that a high bar to just trust the Lord? He's not asking you to scale the top of a high mountain. He's not asking you to swim to the other side of an ocean. He just says, trust what I've done for you and follow me. Everybody who doesn't do that, Jesus says there might come a point where there's a too late. And you don't get to spend it with me in heaven and eternity. You get to spend it someplace else that's not as good for eternity. It's a hard teaching. But what should it share with us? That there's an immediacy about our faith. That it matters now. 
that we should be yearning to understand God more, not just because of we received the peace, right, and the strength and the hope and all the good stuff we talked about in the morning services, right, but that we'd secure our spot in heaven with him for eternity. We should be yearning like that group that the pastor was talking about to understand scripture more and more and more and more, giving us a comfort and a peace about what is to come. But so many in our world don't pursue that, don't think that way. Thanks be to God, it's just a little faith that saves, right? So we praise God for that and we hope for some of those that aren't seeking him with all their life that still there's a way for them to come through the fires and be saved. It also shares an importance, doesn't it? And I know it's counterculture they do this too, but to share with people that we love about Jesus. I use this illustration because I think it's beautiful in a way. I mean, it's not beautiful, it's hard, but when we don't say anything to people that we care about, about Jesus, it's like being on the shores, right, as the Titanic's taken off and you know what's going to happen to it. And you're just waving at them saying, have a good trip, you almost make it. You know, have a good trip. And we're rooting them on and we're cheering them on, but we never say, get off the boat. You're going to your destruction. We got to stop doing that. And there's ways to tell people and talk about Jesus in ways that you share the good stuff, right? That, that germinates in them and wants the, gets them to a place where they want to know more about him. But we've got to stop pretending. You almost make it. We've got to start sharing with them about Jesus. If we love them, that's what true love is. It's continuing to try. My grandma, I love my grandma. She was not the most tactful girl in the world. She is not. She would just share it like it was, sometimes more than it was, but she would just keep sharing. But she tried with my aunt for 30 years because my aunt left the church at a certain point. And so she would, like, all the time, call her up and talk to her about, hey, we've been to church. She would send her portals of prayer. She would send her literature that she read, some new book that came out. I mean, she would keep sending this stuff over and over and over and over. And you just got to imagine it took 30 years. My aunt was like, what are you doing? I said, I don't want to go to church. I said, I don't believe anymore. I said, I just don't want any part of this. Stop sending me stuff. But the one thing that my aunt knew more than anything is that what? Grandma loved her. And she knew why she was doing it. She just wants to see her in heaven. My grandma was an amazing lady of prayer after 30 years. That's a long time. My aunt came to faith through somebody else that she met at an art auction or something like that. Gave her life over to Jesus and is going to be in heaven with grandma one day. And the lesson of my grandma is simply this. She loved her child. She risked everything with that child, right? I mean, my aunt could have got mad, stopped calling her. I mean, all sorts of different things. But she continued to love on that child, love on my aunt, until somehow God broke through. I'm not saying for you to do it quite like grandma did, right? She had no tact. But the reality is, you can share truth and love. And I promise you, in relationship, God's going to give you opportunity again and again and again to share with them about Jesus. And I think I shared this last week, but there's a cool illustration they used in a funeral I did a couple weeks back, that because we're broken, that's good because that's how the light gets in. It's in our broken times that we're most receptive to hearing about God's love, about his strength, about the fact that there's still hope, about the forgiveness that he has for us. It's when we're most receptive to seeking help from someone that can actually help us. And so we take those opportunities in people's lives because that's when they're most receptive to Jesus and that's where they need him most. It's why you're out here at church, isn't it? You guys didn't come for me to tell you about what was right and what's wrong all the time. You come 
to get strength, to face your day tomorrow. You come for reminders that you're forgiven so you can finally let go of the past. You come because you need the good stuff that Jesus has for you. He goes on and he, get, and he talks about, in chapter 14, one Sabbath, when he went to dine at a house of a ruler of the Pharisees. Uh, they were there watching him carefully. And behold, there was a, a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and the Pharisees saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Now there's a lot of lawyers there, or a lot of Pharisees there. He's at the house of the Pharisees. They're actively looking to come up with some excuse to put Jesus behind bars or to give him an excuse to do something worse. So here's Jesus. He's at this thing. He probably knows it's a little bit of a trap. There's this guy there that just suddenly needs some healing, right? Maybe he was planted. Maybe he just stumbled in off the streets because he heard Jesus was there. Either way, everybody's on the edge of their seats going, what's Jesus going to do? And so he kind of ruins it for him because he says, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Kind of a curious question, right? But if you go to the rabbinical writings, it says it is absolutely unlawful for you to heal on the Sabbath unless it's life-threatening. So if you're, they're going to die, it's okay to heal them. But if they can wait till tomorrow for the surgery or whatever it might be, then you wait for tomorrow. It's only if it's a life-threatening situation that you're allowed to heal on the Sabbath. It's in the rabbinical writings. And so if they were going to respond with that, they would say, it's unlawful. And sometimes they did in, script, in the Gospels. They say, it's unlawful to heal on the Sabbath. But they also knew that nowhere in Scripture did it forbid, you know, healing on the Sabbath. And they didn't want to come right out and say it was that way because the guy was standing there, because there was people in the crowd. It would have seemed like they were being unsympathetic. So they were silent. Then he took the man and he healed him and he sent him away. And then he said to them to follow up, which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? And they, would, and they could not reply to these things. And so then he used this example. What if you're ox falls in the well. You going to pull it out? Now, there were some really strict Pharisees that would have said, like, yeah, I'll just leave it there tomorrow. I mean, that's okay. But that's why he added son. What if your son fell into the well? Would you throw him down some dinner and say, I'll get you tomorrow? Or would you, would you help him out? In each and every case, even in their biblical writings, they would say it's okay to show mercy to get your son. Jesus was just outlining it's good to show mercy on the Sabbath. It's good to do good on the Sabbath. And because of the way it all went down, they were speechless. Now, he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed uh, how they chose the places of honor. And usually it was a very dictated way, but apparently this one was more of a free fall. After Jesus got his spot, they all were kind of running in to get their places, uh, their self-chosen places of honor. And then he says this, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited, be invited by him. And he who invited you will come and say to you, give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you'll be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So he uses this illustration. There was some popular teaching at the time by some of the rabbis. Always pick a spot that's two or three spots below what you, you know, should do. So that way that can lift you up and you're honored in front of all. Jesus says, go to the worst spot. 
You know, let them have it all. And then if they ask you to come forward, you're still honored. But in humility, you've put everybody else before you. And, well, that's what works with God. And he uses it to make this larger point. All those that exalt themselves before the Lord, God humbles. And all those that humble themselves before the Lord, in humility and confession and repentance, God forgives and lifts up. I'll give you a different way of thinking this, this idea of exalting yourself. Exalting yourself would be trying to do life without God. Think about that. Why do we worry? Like this morning's message. We worry because we're trying to control the uncontrollable and we've forgotten to go to God yet. So we keep stewing and we keep doing, trying to come up with a solution. But God says, come to me and I'll give you peace. We go through life so often trying to do life without him. We just forget that he's there. We get so consumed with the moment, so consumed with life, so consumed with our ability or whatever the deal might be that we forget to come to him. We forget to humble ourselves to him to say, God, I need your help today. I need your help with this situation. I need to be reminded that you still got me. I need to be forgiven. I need you in my life right now. And every time we do this, God lifts us up and he heals and he forgives and he renews and he strengthens and he gives hope. Every time we do this, what happens to our life? It gets more and more frustrating and confusing and hard. It's just a different way to look at the same kind of thing. But he who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. I got a question here. Let me see. How many kids' oxen were falling down a well uh, for this to be the, for his first choice of a metaphor? Like, was it people and animals falling down wells a frequent thing? Um, okay, so they did make these pits to capture wild animals that were hunting their uh, flock, right? Or their, or their oxes or whatever it might be. And often they would cover these holes on your own property. You knew where they were, right? You would cover these things so that those wild animals would fall into them and you'd capture them and then they wouldn't eat your stuff, right? So they would do these things. Now, can you imagine that one of your cattle got loose from where it's pen or wherever it might be and stumbled across one of these things? Well, sure. So I, I'm sure in that case it happened you know, more frequently than you would think. For your son to fall down, maybe he was young. I I don't know what the deal was. So I do not know how frequently that was, but frequently enough, apparently, where they put it in the rabbinic writing. So that's my uh, unofficial answer to that. All right, let's see if we can get this one in. He said to a man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest... They also invite you in return, and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor and the crippled and the lame and the blind, and you will be blessed, because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. It's an interesting statement Jesus makes here, kind of counterintuitive to the social life that most of us live, right? Not that you expect them to invite you back, but that's how it works. I host this dinner, you host the next one. I pay for this dinner, you pay for the next one, and kind of the way it works. But what he's saying is, if you're making it about other people, in Jesus' eyes, who could benefit greater than some of the people that don't get to enjoy that on a regular basis? And I think he's making a greater point here, too. The things that we do to follow Jesus, the way that we love others, God sees each and every action that we do. 
And so you talk about good works. Good works aren't salvific. It's not the thing that gets us to heaven, right? It's not that you could ever do enough because you can't. If somebody says, are you going to heaven? You say, well, I think I've been good enough. You're wrong. You haven't been. You've been lousy, right? You're sinful through and through. It's because of Jesus that we go to heaven. It's because of Jesus that we're forgiven for every sin that we've done. You can't out-sin his grace. Jesus is the one that forgives each and every single time. But then he calls us to follow. Why? Because he loves us. And one of the things that we know by doing good things, by following Jesus, is that we reap benefits, blessing, 99% of the time. People can still sin against us. That makes up for the 1%. Original sin still messes us up, right? People get sick, all those things. That's 1%. But 99% of the time, you get blessing through it. You don't cheat on your spouse. Guess what? Your marriage is going to be stronger. You don't steal something. Guess what? Your life's probably going to be better. If you honor your family, right? Your father and mother, chances are your relational stuff inside your family are going to be better. If you go remember the Sabbath, your relationship with God's going to be better. If you just follow him most of the time, 99% of the time, you're experiencing blessing. But what God says here is, I see every good thing that you do every way that you love your neighbor that nobody else sees. And there's also somehow this reward thing that he's going to do in heaven. And so rewards, it's not just in this life, but in the next life. And by the way, it's the way that we show that we love God. A couple weeks ago, I preached on faith, right? And faith isn't something you think or feel. The manifestation of faith is something you do. Everything you do is based on a belief system. You sat in that chair today because you believed it would hold you up. Every bad decision you make is because you believe a lie about that, that nobody will find out or I won't get caught or it doesn't really matter or God doesn't really care. Whatever the reason that you concoct in your mind is why you do the bad thing. You base it on a false belief, a false trust. Everything you do in life manifests itself. Every, in, everything you do in life is, is a result of trust that manifests itself in that, in that action. So if you really believe in God, it shows. You can't believe in God and have it not show someplace. And so he says, this is the way that you love me. You obey my commands. And so it benefits us in heaven. It benefits us on earth. It shows that we love God, all those different things. And then one, uh, one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things. He said to them, well, blessed is everybody who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. And he says another hard thing. A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. You could just say invited everybody. And at that time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come for everything is now ready. But they all alike begin to make excuses. I want you to think reasons why I don't go to church, okay? Well, first said to him, I bought a field and must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen. I have to go examine them. Please have me excused. Another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and he reported all these things to the master. Maybe one said it was raining. One said, I don't know, I'm tired today. One said, I was out late last night. Who knows why? But they all had these reasons why they couldn't come. Then the master of the house became angry and he said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and to the lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And let's go get out everybody who needs this banquet, everybody who needs this healing that comes through Christ. All these different things are wrapped into this. And the servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done, and there's still room. 
So the master said, go out, go out into the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled, kind of a reference to the Gentiles, going out and getting them and bringing them in so that they may share in this banquet. For I tell you that none of those men who were invited, who rejected me, shall taste my banquet. Jesus said, now there are gospels about this particular one. He says, many are invited, but few are chosen. Again, it's hard language. It's saying that some don't get to be in heaven, right? It's saying that there should be an act of seeking the Lord, searching after him with all your heart. And we stink at this, by the way, all right? So so just recognize that, that that God sees the little faith that we have and it counts. (laughs) Praise be to God but that he calls us to be an act of seeking, to be responsive to his call, to be ready when he comes. Because there's a lot of people in our world that just are not seeking, are not open to what he has to say, are rejecting him through and through, and when he comes, they will not be ready. And there's a healthiness, it's hardness, but there's a healthiness to dealing with this reality I had a buddy in high school, I shared this before, it was a senior year and he died. One of my good friends and I know he's not in heaven. I knew him well enough where he didn't believe in God and the thing I shared over and over is I beat myself up because I'd never told him about Jesus. I never gave him a shot. Couldn't go to his funeral because I knew everything they were saying just wasn't true. And for the rest of my life that has given me an impetus to share with people that are in my life about Jesus. Because I want him in heaven. Because the thought of anybody else being in hell and saying, why didn't you say anything, kills me. It's probably why I became a pastor, to be quite honest. I don't want anybody else to go to hell without me trying to warn them not to. I'm not waving at anybody else in that Titanic and letting them go. And I can confess to you for the rest of my life since that day, I've shared with everybody in my life about Jesus. It's probably annoying. Ask my kids. I mean, I don't know but I want them desperately in heaven. I want my friends desperately in heaven. I want you guys desperately in heaven. And so I keep sharing with you about Jesus because he's the only way we're gonna get there. And so my encouragement to you guys today is to care more about the people in your life than you do you. (laughs) To with humility take the opportunities that God gives you to share with them about Jesus. To grab hold of Jesus with both arms so that even in your weakest moments, he's still got you. And we need that strength from him. We need that reminder that he's got us. We need the knowledge that he forgives us right where we are. And one day we'll be with him in heaven. Let's go with that encouragement today and with this prayer. God, we love you so much and we thank you for tonight. It's been kind of a a herky-jerky kind of teaching, but... The reality, Lord, is you keep teaching hard things about heaven and how, about hell and how not everybody gets to be in heaven. And that is so countercultural from what we hit here in our world today. And yet you teach it right there in the Gospels. And you teach it on the way to Jerusalem as you're getting ready to die on the cross so that the disciples might know and that the Pharisees might be forewarned and that the people who are in between might wrestle with those truths. Father, allow us to kind of ingest some of these truths tonight. Help it create in us a yearning to know you more. Help it create in us a burden to share with those people around us about how amazing you are. And we pray for this strength and this wisdom in Jesus' name and all God's people said. Guys, go.